I'm John, and this is DOLW2, episode 67, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Engel, volume 2, pages 480 to 494. Stage 2, The Self-Acceptance and Celebration of His New Gay Identity. Gay is Good, The Elimination of Feelings of Guilt and Self-Hatred. Stage 3, The homosexual-slash-gay man shares his coming out with other people, including other homosexuals, friends, family, and other associates. He tells his coming out story to anyone who will listen. Common outward manifestations of his new status include participation in gay public functions, including parades and other types of public demonstrations, the joining of a gay-friendly church, and the wearing of jewelry or distinctive clothing that marks him as a gay man. The neophyte begins to immerse himself in the gay subculture. His new social milieu opens the door to an endless supply of sex partners whom he doesn't have to pay. Drug-taking initiates him into the more overt criminal features of the gay world. Stage 4. The final stage, that of coming out politically, is the most important, if not for the individual, at least for the collective, since without it, the collective would cease to exist. As a gay man, the individual must recognize his debt to the collective and devote himself to the fight against societal homophobia and the struggle to end the oppression of his people. Gay liberation becomes his reason for living. Thomas F. Driver, a Methodist and former Paul Tinnock professor of theology and culture at the Union Theological Seminary in New York, described coming out as a confessional experience. Confessional performance is an early necessary step in the liberation of any oppressed people. I am speaking of acts in which people openly proclaim their identity as members of an oppressed group and confessing loyalty to the cause of liberation, said Driver. According to Roida, once the transformation of the gay man is complete and loyalty to the homosexual Borg assured, he is then ready to serve as a role model for homosexuals in the early stages of the coming out process. In the international anthology Coming Out, New York political activist edit- slash editor Stefan Lakoski affirmed the importance of coming out as a symbol of opposition to the authority of the traditional family, religious doctrine, and state power. He compared the gay movement with other great freedom movements of the 20th century, including the anti-apartheid civil rights and feminist movements, but one with significant difference, but with one significant difference. The gay revolution, however, is unique in at least one important way. It has the potential of liberating the homoerotic component repressed in all of us, and in doing so, transforming social relations as never before experienced in history. The vision of a world peopled by polysexual individuals and freed of rigid sex roles is today no longer confined to sci-fi literature. Rather, it is a vision for which many of us around the globe find necessary to struggle if the human family is to be preserved. Outing, unlike coming out, is not based on choice. It uncloses or closeted, whether they want it or not. It has become a powerful political weapon used by activist groups like Queer Nation and ACT UP against those homosexuals who refuse to come out on their own volition.
and especially those who are known to harbor feelings of indifference or even hostility toward the homosexual collective. Historically, exposure of an individual as a sodomite was connected with transgressions of the moral laws against which the state and church applied sanctions. Today, it is being used by sodomites as a means of exposing closeted homosexuals of prominence, including entertainers, celebrities, socialites, politicians, wealthy entrepreneurs, corporate executives, sports stars, high clergy, and other power brokers, living and dead. AIDS has also placed played a role in indirectly outing closeted homosexuals from all walks of life, including the priesthood and religious life. In outing, shattering the conspiracy of silence, Johansson and Percy expressed enthusiasm for the practice. Outing represents a pressure brought by the visible and vocal portion of the queer nation on the invisible, silent, prestigious minority, as if it were as it were a demand that the elite of our community recognize their allegiance and act to further the collective interests of our nation to which, by birth, socialization, or choice, they belong. This practice stems from the growth of political consciousness that sees all of us as sharing a common fate and as responsible for one another. If it succeeds, it will magnify our symbolic presence at the upper levels of society and make the public aware of how many prominent individuals prefer tabooed sexual pleasures. Both men agreed that outing has a historic mission and is a necessary and irreversible process whereby the homosexual culture or subculture driven underground by religious intolerance is regaining or asserting its public identity and image. The authors contend that once the post-medieval anachronism of conformity and unanimity in sexual life is destroyed, the need for outing will be relegated to the dustpan of history. On the subject of outing homosexual clergy, Johansson and Percy noted that in recent years, the only clergy that have been outed are clerical pederasts, but that none have been outed on purely ideological grounds. The outing of a living American cardinal might be beneficial to the queer nation as the outing of a Supreme Court justice, but it, and it can rarely and it can scarcely be believed that there are none, they concluded. In his manifesto, Goss characterized outing as a manifestation of transgressive politics. He quoted gay philosopher Richard Moore, who believes that the practice does not violate privacy rights, since it is maintained by the homophobic force of society. Gauss concurred that outing is a legitimate means of fighting oppression, and those who would betray their own, and that unless it violates an overall dignity value, it does not violate private rights. Gauss suggested that one of the services that queer Christian-based communities may choose to perform after a period of reflection and dialogue is the outing of church leaders who have taken active roles in leading homophobic hate campaigns. Goss gave an excerpt from a letter that was written by a gay priest to Reverend Robert Williams, author of Just As I Am, A Practical Guide to Being Out Proud and Christian and the first openly homosexual priest in the Episcopal Church. According to Williams, his friend, queer priest Zal Sherwood, 
told him he had slept with so many closeted clergy, including three closeted bishops, and that he had a very good memory for detail. Sherwood said he was anxious to out them and sought William's advice. Williams replied that if these priests and bishops are just are doing something to actively harm us gays, outing is in order. If they are just living their lives quietly, it is not. However, he agreed with Sherwood that closeted gays harm all gays and they perpetuate homophobia. Williams concluded that they owe us something and urged Sherwood to use as his guide what would be the most loving thing to do. Our ordained by the openly homosexual Episcopalian Bishop John Spong of the New York Newark Diocese. Williams died in 1992 at the age of 37 of AIDS-related complications. Williams demonstrates the love-hate relationship that exists between the collective and all organized religion to which we now turn our attention. Relations with religious organizations and movements. Despite the fact that the collective has consistently denounced religion as an instrument of oppression against gays, it has been forced to accept the fact that without support from religious leaders, their cause is dead in the water and it has acted accordingly. Of all society's institutions, none is as important to the collective as organized religion and religious movements. Religion is the supreme arbitrator and validator of human behavior. The secular state declares that what acts are illegal, but only the church can declare what acts are moral and which are sinful. And it is upon the latter that our eternal destiny and salvation depends. As long as religion continues to hold homosexual acts to be objectively sinful and opposed to the natural law, the collective will never achieve its objectives. Hence, the collective's preoccupation with infiltrating, colonizing, and subverting existing religious institutions using the same strategies that have proven effective in the penetration of secular institutions in order to bring them under the collective's sphere of influence. It has also created its own churches and parachurches, specifically the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches, UFMCC, that falls under its direct control. Although this book is primarily concerned with the collective's ongoing offensive against the Roman Catholic Church, nevertheless, the following general assessment of the collective's penetration of non-Catholic religious institutions in the United States will be a helpful adjunct to the reader. Capitalizing on church assets. As Rueda has noted, churches, once they have been infiltrated by the homosexual movement, constitute one of its most important allies. Not only do these religious institutions sanctify, or at least appear to sanctify, which is just as useful, same-sex behavior and practices, and provide the collective with the credibility and respectability uh, it so ardently craves, they also put their manifold resources and personnel at the service of the collective. The vast bureaucracies of the captive churches provide the collective with funding in the form of cash and grants. Their educational and communication facilities provide public forms for advancing the collective's ideology and programs. Peace and justice and AIDS ministry offices are especially vulnerable to exploitation. Church members and other contacts within their denominations Ecumenical networks provide a huge human reservoir of relatively naive men and women from which the collective can call 
non-homosexual fellow travelers and enlist volunteers to serve its interests. Larger denominations with lobbying staffs at state and national levels offer the collective obvious political advantages. The formation of special commissions to study the homosexual question and the formation of homosexual organizations like Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, PFLAG, P-F-L-A-G, all under the control of the collective, serve to move the homosexual forward within the church. Teen youth groups are a favorite hunting ground for homosexuals with pederastic inclinations. Even relatively young school-aged children can be recruited for special quasi-political projects, such as the well-publicized quote project in which the names of people who have died of HIV infection are sewn onto the quilt. To date, no major religious denomination, Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish, has escaped penetration by the collective. In a few cases, such as the Unitarian Universalist Church, subterfuge has been quite unnecessary. As an overall strategy, the collective has chosen to sell itself to their religious brethren as a civil rights movement and has played down the moral issues surrounding homosexual behavior. It has also placed great emphasis on the homosexual condition as one that is not chosen but rather innate, i.e. permanent and untreatable. Congregations are assured that the homosexual collective poses no threat to traditional marriage or family life. A combination of non-confrontational and confrontational politics are employed by the homosexual movement depending upon the political lay of the land and the degree of resistance expected from the larger from the target church. In general, the more traditional and doctrinaire the denomination, the greater the resistance to the manipulation of scripture and dogma to suit the needs of the collective and to the acceptance of holy unions and the ordination of gays and lesbians. Where the gay man or lesbian chooses to remain in his or her church, it is expected that in any case of conflict of interest, loyalty to the collective will override all other considerations. In many cases, however, homosexuals dissatisfied with hostile religious attitudes toward same-sex behaviors by mainstream denominations prefer to join alternative churches and parachurches created by and for homosexuals or turn to Eastern mysticism and or to the occult for religious validation. Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Churches The most prominent and politically active homosexual alternative church is the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches, UFMCC, founded by Reverend Troy Perry, an avowed homosexual in Los Angeles in 1968. The UFMCC currently boasts a membership of 43,000 gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians in 300 congregations worldwide. The UFMCC teaches that homosexuality is not a sin and not a sickness, and that homosexual relationships should be celebrated and affirmed. It depends heavily upon the questionable research findings of the so-called social sciences to validate what it calls its elastic theology. According to Perry, the UFMCC is committed to confronting the injustice of poverty, sexism, racism, and homophobia through Christian social action. On the other hand, Rueda states that the primary function 
of the UFMCC is to subvert Catholic, Protestant, and non-Christian religious institutions and transform them into political and ideological allies. The UFMCC has acted as a battering ram against the Roman Catholic Church and more traditional Protestant denominations and evangelical sects. In this venture, the UFMCC's Department of Ecumenical Relations, headed by R. Adam DeBaugh, has proven to be demonstrably effective in establishing gay cooperative political networks within these churches. An examination of DeBaugh's extensive memberships in a wide range of ecumenical organizations and enterprises amply demonstrates how the system works. Prior to his joining the UFMCC in Washington, D.C. in 1973, DeBoer served as the director of the Center for the Study of Power and Peace and was administrative assistant to Congressman Bob Edgar, who later became the head of the National Council of Churches. In June 1975, DeBoer confounded the UFMCC Washington Field Office on Capitol Hill and became a full-time lobbyist for gay rights. He served as, on the board of directors of the Gay Rights National Lobby, which had his offices at the UFMCC Field Office. Later, that same year, he was named director of the UFMCC Department of Christian Social Action. He served on the board of directors of the Washington Blade and on the board of directors of the UFMCC Emmaus House of Prayer. He was named co-director of the new Department of Ecumenical Relations, and in 1981, he wrote the UFMCC's original application for membership in the National Council of Churches of Christ in the U.S. In October 1983, DeBaugh was elected District Commissioner of the Mid-Atlantic of the UFMCC District and served on the General Council. He has served on the Board of Trustees of the Fund for Overcoming Racism and Board of Directors among, of Among Friends, Inc., a gay crisis center. He is currently the director of Chiro Press, another UFMCC nonprofit spinoff. According to Roida, during his employment at the UFMCC Washington Field Office, DeBaugh worked closely with the little-known but powerful Washington Interreligious Council on Human Rights and helped found the Interface Council on Human Rights. He maintained close contact with the National Council of Churches, NCC, the National Council of Community Churches, the World Council of Churches, the Ecumenism Research Agency, the NCC Commission on Women in Ministry, the NCC Joint Strategy and Action Coalition, and the Washington Interreligious Staff Council, reported Rueda. DeBaugh had a particularly close working relationship with New Ways Ministry, formerly headed by Sister Janine Gramick of the Catholic School Sisters of Notre Dame and Reverend Robert Nugent, a Catholic priest of the Society of the Divine Savior. In the spring of 1980, Nugent assisted DeBaugh in putting together a series of denomination statements that the UFMCC used to lobby for a Congressional National Gay Rights Bill. 
Rueda noted that one of the lesser-known activities of DeBoer's ecumenical office was the infiltration of seminaries and schools of theology across the United States in order to out- scout out lesbian and gay seminarians, staff, and faculty. The UFMCC helped form homosexual caucuses within these facilities and also established an ongoing network of homosexual clergy from all denominations charged Rueda. Queer Christian Theology and Based Communities Along the lines of metropolitan churches, Catholic priest Robert Goss advocates the creation of new alternative forms of religious practice, including new sacraments and the formation of Christian change or base communities as alternative churches for homosexuals and others who have been disenfranchised and oppressed by institutional structures. Christianity itself is not the enemy. Institutional forms of Christianity are, said Goss. He has proposed the deconstruction of Christology, especially in its ecclesial authority hierarchy and its replacement with a new Christ, not Christ the oppressor, but Jesus the liberator. The new change-slash-based communities will be non-hierarchical and inclusive and embrace an erotic Jesus, Goss wrote. The new social order of God, according to Goss, will embrace initiation, baptism, sacraments that require queer Christians to come out in both a person and a spiritual sense, a new communion in the form of breaking bread and sharing a cup that will represent an act of liberation, rites of healing and exorcisms to expunge feelings of internal homophobia, the blessing of same-sex unions, and the recognition of queer ministry. Goss said that these new change-slash-space community structures will be places where Christians can celebrate the joy of being lesbians and gay men, places of lovemaking and justice-doing. In Queering Christ, Beyond Jesus Acted Up, Goss' sequel to Jesus Acted Up, Goss praised his fellow ex-Jesuit Joe Kramer's vision of a futuristic, erotic, religious community of gay-slash-bisexual men based on rituals of sex. Goss went on to elaborate on the spiritual meaning of one of these rituals called barebacking, that is, anal penetration without the use of condoms, including copulation with AIDS-infected partners. Goss quoted sex activist Eric Roths, who argues that anal sex is what gives meaning to who you are as a gay man. Goss said that sodomy is real sex, the gay equivalent of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, and it gives homosexual partners a spiritual experience of self-effacement and intimacy, theosophy, the occult, and Eastern mysticism. For homosexual slash for homosexual men and women who prefer a more serene, meditative, mystical slash magical approach to spirituality, occult sex like theosophy and its modern-day progeny, the New Age movement offer homosexuals still other alternatives to Christianity. Since the late 19th century, theosophy, as proclaimed by its most famous proponent, Helena Petrona, Madame Blavatsky, 1831-1891, to has attracted a number of spiritual and moral renegades from Christianity. Theosophists proclaim the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, or sexual orientation, caste, or color, and embrace an ecumenical spirit of indifferentism 
with regard to specific regions or philosophical movements. The theoretical framework for theosophy incorporates all of the ancient heretical occult systems, including pantheism, Gnosticism, Jewish Kabbalism, and European Neoplatonist Hermeticism, as well as elements of the Eastern mysticism of Hinduism, Buddhism, Yogism, and Brahmanism, overlaid with the heavy metal of good old-fashioned spiritualism. Theosophy has no mandatory creed or dogma or moral code. Its members are free to accept or reject any or all of the truths or philosophical ideals it offers, including belief in reincarnation and the law of karma, that is the sum and consequences of a person's actions during the successive phases of his existence that determine his fate or destiny. Theosophy does not require a personal God, only an omnipotent divine spirit. It rejects Christian belief in a personal immortality and in heaven and hell. As in all occult societies, theosophists seek out the secret knowledge of life and nature that is made known only to the few chosen or elect through direct initiate intuition or illumination of the divine spirit or essence or its intermediary masters. It's not difficult to understand why homosexuals and other sexual outlaws have historically been attracted to heretical teachings like theosophy. The School of Modern Theosophy was founded by Ukrainian-born Madame Blavatsky in New York City in 1875 and later relocated to Adyar, Madras, India, the home of all theosophic speculation. In 1885, the famed seer left India and went to London where she set up her residence and the headquarters of the Theosophical Society at Maycott College Cottage in Norwood. Here she wrote her magnum opus, The Secret Doctrine, and took over the training of a small group of novices that included the well-known freethinker and Fabian feminist Annie Besant, a convert from Anglicanism to Theosophy and Blavatsky's heir apparent. My brief reference to Theosophy that most likely would have ended here were it not for the appearance on the English theosophical scene at about this time of another famous convert to theosophy, one Charles Webster Ludbeter, who in a relatively short period of time managed to draw the society into a major pederast scandal. Considering the facts that at least two Catholic religious orders, the Legionaries of Christ and the Society of St. John, have been accused of harboring clerical pederasts whose modus operandi bear an uncanny resemblance to that of Master Leadbeater, I think it is a story worth telling. According to Dr. Gregory Tillett, one of Leadbeater's more recent biographers, when he was a young man, his mother told Charles that he, he had a vocation in the church. Although Leadbeater lacked a university education, he managed to get himself ordained to the priesthood in 1879 largely because of his family's connection, his family connections to the Anglican Church. He was the nephew of the eminent Church of England clergyman William Wolfe Capes of the Diocese of Winchester. Till it records that Leadbeater's first assignment was at St. Andrew's Church in Farnham. He lived in a small cottage called Hartford in nearby Bramshot with his mother until her death. 
competent and attentive to all his ministerial duties. Leadbeater took a particular interest in the training and religious education of young boys in his parish, and he established a number of study groups and clubs for them, wrote Tillett. However, Leadbeater soon became theologically restless with Orthodox Church doctrine and started to look for answers from unorthodox sources, including spiritualism and the occult, said Tillett. His first contact with Theosophy came through a reading of The Occult World by A.P. Sennett, president of the London Lodge, which highlighted Blavatsky's alleged extraordinary occult powers. On November 21, 1883, Leadbeater joined the Theosophical Society. Only 13 months later, on December 21, 1884, Leadbeater reported that he had received new, some new revelations. He left everything and everyone and sailed from England to India, where he joined the Theosophical Society staff at his international headquarters in Adyar. His arrival coincided with the annual convention of the society that reinforced his belief in the doctrine of the masters. He later traveled to Ceylon, where he undertook an intense study of Buddhism and converted to Buddhism. In Ceylon, he also discovered a 13-year-old Buddhist boy named Jinaraja Dasa, the reincarnation of his younger murdered brother, Gerald. The young man became Leadbeater's traveling companion and assistant. By 1889, Leadbeater had become a rising star in theosophical circles, said Tillett. He returned to England where he met the ailing Blavatsky's protege, Annie Besant, who controlled the esoteric branch of the society in London and who assumed full control of the society when Blavatsky died in 1891. According to Tillett, Passant and Leadbeater formed a warm friendship and began the joint explorations of astral and mental planes, life after death, reincarnation, and past lives. As Leadbeater's reputation as a world-class occultist grew, so did the popularity of his writings. In An Occultist View on Christianity, 1899, Leadbeater disclaimed Jesus as the Christ and denied his divinity as the second person of the Trinity. He also acquired another boy companion, Basil Hodgson Smith. Between 1900 and 1906, Leadbeater undertook a series of highly successful lectures in major cities of the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand that brought him worldwide acclaim in theosophical circles. All these accolades, however, came to a screeching halt, said Tillett, when Mrs. Besant received a letter from Mrs. Helen Dennis, corresponding secretary of the Theosophical Society, Esoteric Section in the United States, dated January 25, 1906. The communication informed Passant that while Leadbeater was in the state, he had engaged in morally criminal acts with young adolescent and pre-adolescent boys entrusted to his care. Dennis indicated that these representable acts included instruction in self-abuse, masturbation, and mutual touching. Leadbeater reportedly told his charges the instruction was part of their occult training and would help make them strong and manly and ward off 
lustful feminine advances. Most telling was the fact that Leadbeater held the boys to secrecy. The letter also indicated that these were not isolated incidents and that Leadbeater had likely abused other boys in India, Ceylon, and possibly England. One of his victims was a young American boy named Douglas Pettit, who revealed that Leadbeater told him that his aura indicated he was in sexual distress and needed masturbation as an outlet. In a coded letter found in Toronto to another of his darlings, Leadbeater recommended masturbation twice a week. Glad sensation is so pleasant. A thousand kisses he signed off. When confronted with the charges by Bassant and the London Theosophical Society, Leadbeater did not bother to disclaim them. He admitted that he had given the boys instruction on masturbation because he believed the practice to be an antidote to even worse vice later on in life. Following a trial before the British Lodge on May 16, 1906, with an American representative in attendance, Leadbeater was forced to resign on, in disgrace from the society. Wisely, he went into semi-retirement until the masters should call the martyr from his tomb. Thus, the Leadbeater affair was brought to a temporary close. Towards the end of 1908, Bassant, who had initially condemned Leadbeater, had a change of heart and mind and urged his reinstatement to the Theosophical Society. He returned to India in February 1909, just in time to discover a new Christ and the person of a young Indian boy, Jiddu Krishnamurti. The society established the Order of the Star of the East to pave the way for a second coming, which never came. In the meantime, details of Leadbeater's ill-fated 1906 secret trial on charges of sex abuse began to leak out into the international press in India. An article appeared in the Hindu stating that Leadbeater was not a fit person to be the guardian of a pig, and Krishna's father wanted his son back. A protracted custody battle ensued. In the meantime, Leadbeater had discovered yet another messiah at the 1913 Annual Society's convention in Benares. Leadbeater said that the boy known as Ragagopal was Rajagopal was the reincarnation of St. Bernard of Clabeau. As controversy continued to swirl about him, Leadbeater left India for a lecture tour in the Pacific regions. In August 1914, he decided to settle in Australia. Here he renewed his, an old friendship with a fellow sexual pervert named James Ingle West Wedgwood. Wedgwood had joined the Theosophical Society in 1904. Leadbeater was his sponsor. Wedgwood was also a 33-degree co-Freemason and a member of the occult Ordo Templi Orientis, OTO. On June 12, 1915, Leadbeater was initiated into the Masonic Order by Wedgwood and quickly rose to the 33rd degree. Tillett reported that Leadbeater also became interested in other occult societies, including the Temple of the Rosy Cross, Rosicrucians, and later the OTO in Australia that was headed by one of his pupils, Vivian Deacon. In the meantime, Wedgwood embarked on a new spiritual adventure, this time with the ancient Catholic Church, liberal Catholic Church, based in Great Britain. 
Archbishop Arnold Harris Matthew welcomed the new convert, homosexual warts and all. After his baptism and confirmation, Wedgwood began promoting the liberal Catholic Church among members of the Theosophical Society, including Leadbeater. Believing that he was being called to holy orders, Wedgwood presented himself for minor orders, was ordained a deacon, and on July 22, 1913, was ordained into the liberal Catholic priesthood by Dr. Matthew. He was eventually made a bishop, being a homosexual, Wedgwood said, was no bar to the priesthood or the hierarchy, since morality was not a prerequisite for liberal Catholic priests. He was free to continue his homosexual cottaging in public toilets. On July 22, 1916, Leadbeater joined Wedgwood as a consecrated bishop of the liberal Catholic Church. He also began to recruit some of his former pupils to the liberal Catholic Church of priesthood. It did not take long for the roof to fall in on the growing homosexual slash pederast ring that had formed within the church. In 1919, Reginald Farrer, a liberal Catholic priest and a friend of Wedgwood and former pupil of Leadbeater, confessed to church elders that he had been drawn into the vice of sodomy, but whereas he had denounced his own perversion, he said that Wedgwood had not given up the practice. Wedgwood, now in a senior position in the church, initially pleaded innocence, pleaded innocent, but eventually resigned his ecclesiastical office, said Tillett. Leadbeater moved up and replaced him as presiding bishop. Eventually, four high-ranking clerics were expelled from the church for engaging in acts of sodomy, including Bishop Frederick Samuel Willoughby, who had consecrated Wedgwood. With all the mud-slinging and sensational revelations going on, it was only a matter of time before members of the London Theosophical Society demanded an investigation of the immorality that threatened the integrity of the society. After all, it was Leadbeater who had initiated Wedgwood into the society. In the meantime, back in Australia, Leadbeater had formed a small theosophical community for boys between the ages of 14 and 21. In 1922, he obtained a large residence in Sydney known as the Manor to house his own, his new community where some of the young men lived. All the, all male communal bathing was the rule at the Manor, and it was reported that Leadbeater received an enema in front of the boys as part of his morning ritual. Enemas are commonly used in preparation for sodomy. According to Tillett, from May to June of that same year, the police carried out an investigation to see if there was any concrete evidence of criminal activities by Leadbeater at the manor. The Sears pupils from the manor were interviewed but refused to give any evidence against their teacher. The records from the official inquiry indicated that students indicated the students may have been coached by Leadbeater, and some returned later to amend their statements. In his final report, the police indicated Leadbeater was a sexual pervert who should be kept under observation, but there was not enough evidence to jail him. And I end my podcast here at page 491 and continue on my next podcast. 
So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.